You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome everyone to, uh, what week are we in? Week three, right? Week three of the, I was going to say, the Sermon on the Mount. What? What? Okay, so if my head's not spinning, it will be spinning soon because I preached on Blessed are the poor in spirit. I preached on blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. I'm teaching on blessed are those who mourn. And next week I'm teaching on blessed are the meek. But then that weekend I'm preaching on blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I'm going to get all the Beatitudes mixed up at one point. Yeah. Yeah. So I will. will it, well, we'll see if it's all good. Um, we are, uh, but let's, listen, I thought what we would do is we begin and this will kind of set our, our, our set the tone for tonight in some ways, because, uh, we are carrying on with the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. And I thought I would pray a, a prayer, a, a Puritan prayer. Now the Puritans, they lived, uh, they were, um, um, Calvinists of the uh, 17th century in England, 15, uh, the 16th and 17th century. And uh, they, they certainly had a sense of their own sinfulness. Let's put it this way. And, and you'll hear this in this, uh, in this prayer. Let's pray. Thou righteous and holy sovereign, in whose hand is my life and whose are all my ways, Lord, keep me from fluttering about religion. Fix me firm in it, for I am irresolute. My decisions are smoke and vapor, and I do not glorify thee or behave according to thy will. Cut me not off before my thoughts grow to responses and the budding of my soul into full flower, for thou art forbearing and good, patient and kind. Lord, save me from myself. From the artifices and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against thee, from wrong principles, views, and ends, for I know that all my thoughts, affections, desires, and pursuits are alienated from thee. I've acted as if I hated thee, although thou art love itself. I have contrived to tempt thee to the uttermost, to wear out your patience. I've lived evilly in word and action. Had I been a prince, I would long ago have crushed such a rebel. Had I been a father, I would long ago rejected my child. But, O oh, thou father of my spirit, thou king of my life, cast me not into destruction, drive me not from thy presence, but instead wound my heart that it may be healed. Break it, that thine own hand may make it whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, there's, there's a richness to that. Well, we're going to carry on in our uh, uh, series on the Beatitudes. And uh, just as a reminder, the Beatitudes are the characteristics of a gospelized people. Uh, they describe the heart and the transforming heart of those who have entered the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus inaugurates through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And, and one of the themes, and we talked about this last week, one of the themes to understand this word blessed, this word makarios, is to think of, of that of, um, of it is the God of Israel blessing. It is, it, is, um, it is us being brought into something from the outside, and the second thing is this image of a father speaking to his son or a mother speaking to her daughter saying, hey, this is a way of life. Stay away from these paths. And so in response, what we do is we align our lives to get in sync with the rhythm of the Sermon on the Mount to this new life into which we are invited through Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. We're kind of running it. I think there's still room around tables if you want, but you can sit there or whatever you like. Um, the tables are now, oh, that's good. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're invited into a new life 
through Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. And we learned that uh, to be in God's kingdom, we need to be poor in spirit. And that means we need to recognize on our own, we bring nothing to the table. But we're dependent upon God. And so if you're one of those people here tonight online and you feel that, man, I do not measure up. I cannot live this life. This just seems so hard. What does Jesus say to you? You're in. What else does he say? I heard you over there. You lucky bum, right? You lucky bum. You are in. And so today, with that that in mind, we shift to the second of the Beatitudes, which actually is related to the first one. And so if you have your Bible, look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read this together, or I'll read it, and you can follow along. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these are the Beatitudes, and they invite us into a way of being in the world that will cause us to flourish as human beings. And they present a way of life that if we do not walk according to it, we has implications as well. And do you know what I came across this week? And I and once you see it, I hopefully you'll you'll see it the way uh, like. I hadn't thought about this before, but somebody brought it to my attention. And what they said is that, you know, that the whole Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, is an, is a, um, an elaboration of Psalm 1, the first Psalm. You ever think about that? Let me read to you Psalm 1. Not someone, but Psalm 1, okay? This is how it goes. It says, Blessed is the one, right? Blessed, yeah. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields his fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And in, in, in this psalm, it points out two different ways of, of, of living. It, it points us towards the way of blessing, but also shows us two paths of being in the world, which is a big theme in the Sermon on the Mount. It also uses tr- uh, fruit-bearing trees as a metaphor, which shows up also in the Sermon on the Mount. It speaks of final judgment, separation of the righteous from the wicked, which again shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. And it talks, it contrasts those that the Lord knows and those who he does not know, which shows up in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. And both emphasize on hearing and heeding God's revelation. And it's interesting because I've done a little bit of study on, 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 on the Psalms. And the interesting thing is Psalm 1 and, and Psalm 2 are not actually, um, in some ways, they're not actually prayers. So they're, they're the gateway into the Psalms, into the book of Psalms, which is all about teaching us how to pray and how to get in sync with the heart of God. And I think it's interesting. I mean, this is how, how profound the Bible is, is that here you have the psalm, which is a gateway into this life with God. And here you have the Beatitudes, which is a gateway into the Sermon on the Mount, which is about being in sync with God. 
And then you start to see this and there's just layer after layer of, of connection. Anyhow, that's, that's what I came across this week. And I was just, just kind of blown away by that. And because this is Tuesday night, you get the benefit of getting all this bonus features. This is like a DVD bonus feature, right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, what, what I think is, I think all the Beatitudes at first look are a bit strange. But this one has to be the, maybe the strangest of the Beatitudes. And I, we're going to look at this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But before we do that, I'm going to give you guys a fun but awkward exercise. Yes. And it's even super awkward online. You know, I almost, I was this close to breaking you guys into, into, break, into Zoom breakout rooms, but I didn't. So you're going to have to just put it on, on, on the screen, on the, on the chat. But it's an awkward question, so it'll be funny to see what you guys actually write. Uh, here's the awkward question. Ready? How emotional are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being robot. 10 being Hallmark film, okay? So that's very emotional. Robot, less so. Okay, so how emotional are you on a scale of one to 10? Two, how in touch with you are, how in touch are you with your, what you feel, what you're feeling, and how well can you express what you're feeling? <laughs> that's kind of fun. Um, and then why do you think you are the way you are? I mean, those are a lot of questions. So just kind of, just have a <laughs> we could be here all night but it's just kind of a fun question to get going in terms of how emotional we are because this this is a theme so i'm going to pause and let you guys chat about it so you guys can put numbers and put some answers on the screen there awkward well and just so you realize that at the men's retreat this is what we do we talk about our feelings <laughs> while playing human foosball yes um <laughs> getting my money back um so how many of you would be um how many of you would be seven and up on the emotional scale put up your hands put up your hands on here too okay seven and up oh wow jack interesting yeah okay how many of you would be three and lower yeah, yeah. Oh, really, Al? That's a shock, <laughs> Mike. Yeah. yeah, I'd probably be negative one um, if that's. But but I do say I, I I like it's weird. It'll show up in strange ways. So I was telling yeah, Pete, you know, we we're talking about Cinderella Man, this movie Cinderella Man with Russell Crowe, and I'm watching this, and Russell Crowe, he's got to go to work, and his daughter says, "I'm hungry." He says, "You know what? I had a dream. I had a great meal. Why don't you have my breakfast?" And and you know, he's going to go to work without food, and they're poor, and he probably hasn't eaten for a while. And I'm watching that, and I'm just, just, and I'm like, "What is going on here?" Right? Uh, so every now and then it does show up, which reminds me that I'm um, maybe not a robot. But close. Well, one of the things we're going to be talking about, I mean, the, the, the beatitude tonight is blessed are those who mourn. Um, or is better translated as blessed are those who are mourning or blessed are those who are in a state of mourning. Uh, bless you. And as I mentioned on the weekend, th this is a really strange beatitude because it, it's basically saying happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who are sad. Uh, full are those who are hungry. Alive are those who are dead. Um, John Stott, a commentator, says, what kind of sorrow can it be which brings the joy of Christ's blessing to those who feel it? What kind of sorrow brings his blessing to it? And it's also strange because the word that we have for mourn is a really intense word in the Greek. Um, it, it's, it means um, deep, piercing sorrow. It's the word that is used in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, when um, Jacob hears the news that Joseph is dead. And he just, it's the same word, and it's kind of your terrier clothes, passionate grief being acted out. And Jesus says, in sync are those who mourn. How is this possible? Well, let's, let's look at this, okay? Um, this beatitude, let me just clarify a couple of things. This beatitude is not 
it's not about Jesus seeing us in our mourning and bringing comfort. That's not what this beatitude is about. We know that Jesus does meet us in our sadness, in our mourning, and he does bring us through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, it, this is a message that every time I do a funeral, I tell those at the funeral, I said, you need to know Jesus will meet you in your mourning and he will turn, he will transform this and he will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's what Psalm 23 teaches us. Even though I walked and say, even though I walk around, even though I avoid it's even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, right? And we see Jesus offering in scripture, like all throughout scripture, you know, compassion and care to those who are suffering. This is actually what God does. Uh, we see Jesus with the widow at Nain. We see him with uh, Mary Magdalene. Jesus looks at the crowds and he, and, and he feels compassion. Uh, we read that God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in times of trouble. And so the qualities that we're, we come across in the Beatitudes are not about Jesus comforting the sad, though that is truly what he does. Nor are these, this idea of, of mourning, is this simply a human quality? It's not a personality trait. It's like, oh, that person, he's more, he's on the scale of one to 10. He's more of a seven and up. So he's a little more emotional or she's a little more emotional. Um, you know, and this person tends to be a little more melancholy than others. No, that's not what this is about. These are not natural qualities, but this is a sign of being gospelized. Jesus calls people to himself, and as a result of this, as a result of entering into the kingdom of God, we are transformed and being transformed, and, be and we begin to mourn. So what is this all about? Well, the picture is Jesus coming into our town, calling people to himself, repent and trust, and then as we follow Jesus, we begin to mourn. Yes, we rejoice, but we also begin to mourn deeply. And, uh, you know, I think this is a, a challenge for a lot of people. When they look at the Beatitudes, at first look at the Beatitudes, I'm going to talk about this again next week. Um, there, it's strange because you're told, hey, these Beatitudes, as blessed are, this is supposed to be all about human flourishing. It's all about coming alive. Well, how is being really, really sad? about coming alive. It doesn't make sense. Happy are the sad. Blessed are the sad. Flourishing are the meek. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. It doesn't come across as a life-enhancing vision. Blessed are those who mourn. Since when is being sad a picture of triumph or victory? You know, John Calvin uh, in, the, in the 16th century says, um, a lot of people think of to be happy means to be free from sadness. But in the Beatitudes, Calvin points out that, no, it's a mistake to think that. Because he says, it is not, and this is, we got to get this. It is not incompatible to experience calamities in life, suffering, and still experience joy. These are not opposites. Now, I told you a story of this one uh, uh, professor of mine from a long time ago. I remember talking to him during the break and he says, he says, David, he goes, there's a, there's a world of difference of, uh, you know, a young person who hasn't really experienced a lot of life saying, you know what? God is good. Yeah, he is good. There's a world of difference between that and a person who's just lost his wife and who's traveled and walked with Jesus for much of his life. And he looks at you and he says, you know what? God is good. God is good. And so this idea of joy and happiness is some, or, or joy and, and mourning is somehow opposite to each other. I don't think that's true. But in our world, this really throws people off because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so there's this, you know, this kind of... Uh, Bless you. It seems like a, like a darkness in the Beatitudes. They're, they're, they're strange. Um, so why? Why is grief? 
Why is sorrow a sign of the kingdom? Why is this a quality for those for whom the kingdom of God has come? Now, I'm going to give you some observations. More observations than Sunday. Again, this is bonus features of the DVD, right? Um, a, a few observations just from the start. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn prevents us from misunderstanding the first beatitude. Okay? Blessed are those who mourn. When we get our heads around this, our hearts around this, it prevents us from misunderstanding the first beatitude, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. How can we misunderstand the first um, beatitude? This is where we can get it wrong. We can say, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, it's for those who recognize that they don't have it all together, that they are dependent upon God. And a lot of people are like, well, that's me. Okay, I don't have it all together. I'm poor in spirit. And Jesus says, well done. Congratulations. You recognize you don't have it all together. But then a lot of people say, great, I don't have it all together, full stop. But, you know, it's good that Jesus still accepts me, even though I don't have it all together. And they don't move beyond that. And what this beatitude says, no, 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 you can't just stay there. You don't have it all together. Congratulations, Jesus says, you don't have it all together. You don't have it all figured out. Well done, you're poor in spirit. But now, now that you're in, May the things that break the heart of, of God begin to break your heart. So you cannot just stay and say, okay, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I'm good to go. No, no. You also are called to be to, uh, to mourn. The other thing that shows up, and we talked about this on the weekend, is that our emotions matter. <laughs> we are not called to be robots. Um, we are not called to be cool and rational without emotions. Isn't it weird that that's somehow, I'll speak for men, that that's somehow how we think we ought to be? You know, we got to be this cool, and, you know, when something goes wrong, it's just like, uh, you know, you just, you just kind of, yeah, that's all right. No, you know, you just, I don't know where that came from, but it's a dominant image in, in our culture. And it runs up against everything that's taught in scripture. It, what does it say in Ezekiel? In Ezekiel 36, I shall remove a heart of stone. Many men have hearts of stone. Um, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and put in you a heart of flesh. And so part of our redemption is we need to learn how to react emotionally. And boy, this is this. I'll tell you, honestly, it is hard for me. This is this is hard for me. Now. To be emotional doesn't mean we are always emotional. <laughs> We're not, uh, you know, it doesn't mean to just always be wearing our, our emotions on our sleeve. You know, what I was thinking about it, and maybe some of you guys don't know, and maybe it's not a good example. Um, has anybody ever watched this show called Friends? <laughs> so there's an episode, there's a couple episodes when Bruce Willis was on it. And he was just tough. He was just tough and tough. And he never cried, never cried. And then suddenly he started to come into touch with his heart. And what, what happens? He just becomes, he's just always crying to the point that Jennifer Anna or Rachel breaks up with him. But anyhow, that's what came to mind. It's probably not a good example. Um, but yeah, it means we don't have any self-control when it comes to our emotions. And the other thing about emotions, which makes it a little bit dangerous, and we need to pay attention to our, to our emotions, is that our emotions can go wrong. Sometimes we fall into two ditches. We overreact emotionally. Anybody overreact emotionally? Don't point at people. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the other danger is you underreact. And where emotions are actually appropriate, you don't show them. Honestly, this is where I struggle. I remember making so many people mad. I was, I was working in Shanghai once, like when I was a long time ago, I was working in Shanghai and I was a manager for a department and something went wrong. And my colleague was really, really upset. And she was so mad. And she looked at me and I just felt awkward. And she looked at me and she's so mad. And I went, and I just smiled. And she's like, why are you smiling? She was so mad. And, and, and even then I was still like, I kept, I just kept smiling. I didn't know what to do. And, and I like, no, I shouldn't. And the whole time I'm doing it, I'm like, I shouldn't be doing this, but I didn't know how to respond appropriately. I didn't know what kind of emotion to show. And so I just kept smiling. Boy, she was mad at me. She was so mad. 
And I think part of our challenge as Christians is, is we need to learn how to respond authentically in the right way. Um, and again, the problem in the Christian life is we think the only appropriate emotion for, for a Christian is happiness. We're happy all the time. We're happy all the time. Isn't there a hymn that says, and now I'm happy all the time? I forget what's in. What's this song? Yeah. And now I'm happy all the time. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Joy, 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 down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart, yeah. And I can't remember them, actually. But is there is a line that says, and now I'm happy all the time. And that's always happy all the way. <laughs> sorry. Wow. See, and now you're upset. And I'm just like, sorry. I'm just smiling because I don't know how to react. No, <laughs> no we, but we do read. Okay, hymns aside, great hymns. Um, we do read in the Bible, we need to rejoice in the Lord always. But then people think that this is a ban on feeling miserable. And we don't realize to be miserable, we can't be miserable and still be blessed. Paul does not say, cheer up those who weep. <laughs> he says, weep with those who weep. And if you're like me, whenever I'm around somebody who's very sad and very emotional, every part of me is like, I hope they cheer up. Because I, I, I struggle to know what to do when they're not happy. Anyhow, um, <laughs> I was going to ask you, let me just ask you, too, so why might we be afraid of our emotions? I think a lot of Man, it, it makes you vulnerable. Yeah, it shows it shows shows weakness. You guys got any thoughts on that? Why might we be afraid of our emotions? I think it shows weakness. Like, and we don't want to show, show ourselves to be weak. Um, Simon Tugwell, who's he's a really interesting uh, writer. He's a um, Benedict from the Order of Saint Benedict. He says, to an age suffering with effectlessness, blessed are those who mourn is paradoxically a more necessary message than rejoice in the Lord always, because there can be no true rejoicing until we have stopped running away from mourning. Isn't that interesting? There can be no true rejoicing until we have stopped running away from mourning. The two go together. The other thing uh, this beatitude teaches us, uh, just from as uh, a prelim preliminary thing, it, it teaches us how we respond emotionally matters. Um, and I talked about this on the weekend that that you know we're taught, especially as men, that you know it's not, we're not supposed to cry. And I've seen this. I've seen this so many times in funerals. I've seen it in funerals. I've done hundreds of funerals. And I've just seen people mad and just not, and just not crying. Because they're mad about the way the person died, or they're mad at this, some family member, and they're just, Argh. and it really can do a number on us. And it's not the model we get in scripture, because from what I see is Jesus, he's not afraid to cry at all. We see him when, when Lazarus dies and he's outside the he's outside Lazarus' grave, it says Jesus wept. And it doesn't mean he wept like it meant he wept. It's this deep the, 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 the language just uses this deep sense of crying. And I think that's 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 important. And yeah, and I did read a, a study that's saying when we stuff our grief, it's it, well, all it does is it increases rates of depression and rates of depression are going through the roof in the West. Now, let me just ask you, I mean, some of you um, come from different cultures. Does anybody wanna share um, maybe how within their particular culture, how grieving is carried out? Yeah. From Brazil, okay.
Yeah. So in Brazil, they, they're a lot more expressive, much more. And would they cry for, like, would they grieve for a set period of time or, or an ongoing period of time? Do you know? Really? Interesting. Yeah. And it's probably, I would think it's probably a, a healthier way to be, isn't it? Yeah. No, that's very good. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, you can agree. It's <laughs> okay. Very good. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And was there um so um we're in, in Jamaica that you, you just went to a funeral? I'm just saying for the guys uh, for the people online six months ago. And so when you went to the gravesite, there was a lot of color. You're saying, yeah. And was there a lot of singing? Because I I did a funeral once, and it was for this uh, woman in our church, and she was Jamaican, and they wanted me to do the interment as well, which is the graveside. And usually graveside ceremonies take ten minutes. And so I went there to, to, I was there for over an hour and we sang and we said, I didn't know any of the songs. Um, oh, I knew some of them, but, but it just, and then one person would sing and people would be crying and singing and then it would come to an end and just kind of dissipate. And then somebody else would pick up a song and it went on for, and, but it was just, it was just one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced because it was a mixture of this sense of hope but also a sense of sadness that their friend was gone. Would that kind of capture it a little bit? Yeah. No, very cool. Yeah, d different cultures do 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 things differently. They do. I'm Canadian, but I remember way back when they used to have the open casket, and you'd go and have a viewing and do your crying and all that there. And uh, now we don't even the casket's usually already open. Yeah. Like, you, don't see the casket. you don't see a casket anymore, let alone an open casket. So I've done, you know, I do most of the funerals at, at CA. And I would say of all the funerals I've done, maybe 6% have a have even an urn or a casket. They're, they're all memorials. What's that? A picture. It's just a picture. Yeah. But, but no, not even an urn or um, an, uh, a casket let alone a an open casket. I think in my whole all my years I had two open caskets. Yeah. Yeah. Well it's interesting. Yeah. The other thing that comes out of this um is that the, the Christian life is not all roses and sunshine. And we need to recognize that. Um yeah I think we need to learn to mourn. So now the question is um the question is, when we meet Jesus, oh, uh, why is mourning a mark of the gospelized? Why is mourning blessed? Well, many reasons. On the weekend, I just gave you two, but I promised you bonus reasons. Well, one of the reasons which we did talk about is when we meet Jesus, when we encounter who Jesus is, we come increasingly face-to-face -face with our own hearts. And like that Puritan prayer that I began with, we look at our hearts and we see, wow, there's stuff in my heart that I did not know. I did not realize how 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 much I fell short in this. Um, David Brainerd, who is a uh, missionary um, to First Nations um, people groups in the 18th century, actually, he says this. He, he says, in my morning devotions, my soul was extremely melted. And bitterly, I bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. So he had a real sense of his heart. Um, you know, when I, when I became a Christian, when I gave my life to Jesus, and I share this, that 
I really didn't have a real sense of my sin. Is anybody else like that? Like anybody else come to faith maybe more as an adult? Anybody? Yeah. Some. And so when you came to faith, did you say, oh, man, what a wretched sinner I am? I did to a degree because I knew the way I was living my life was not good. But if you said, David, do you know just how deep this goes? I'd be like, it's not that bad. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see how every single one of those seven deadly sins has a happy home in my heart. Um, and it just it just stays there. And the longer I walk, the more I'm aware of this. Now, this is where our man, the guy introduced to you last week, and I introduced quite a bit, is John Newton has a lot to say. Hold up the book, John Newton. Yes, uh, John Newton, 18th century. Um, 18th century. Um, he was a sailor. He was a he was a he was a worked a captain on a slave ship. Horrible, horrible background. And um, and at first he said, you know, when he came out of the slave trade and he got sick and he couldn't keep keep uh, working in it, he's like, oh man, you know, this was not a really good thing that I did. The older he got the more, and, I, and I've, I've read his journals and you just see how he comes to the point. It's just like, man, what, what was I doing? And to the point, as, as you know, he, he wrote um, this uh, testimony that, that was used to bring about the abolition of slave trade. But he also wrote a series of letters. And this is really interesting. He wrote a series of letters, three letters in particular, that describes how a Christian grows. And it's really interesting. It's fascinating stuff. In the first letter, he says, you know what? When you become a Christian, it's easy. And it's true. When, you become a, when I became a Christian, I prayed and God would answer my prayer. I'm like, this Christian life is it's so easy. I prayed, God answered. This is awesome. Oh, the, you know, why didn't anybody tell me about this? This is a really interesting, easy Christian life. Because everything I did. And when I prayed, I felt alive to God. I felt God was right here. I'd read scripture. I remember working at Oak Ridge Mall and I worked at a bookstore, big shock. Um, and I was on, on, on my break and I'd read my Bible. I was a new Christian. I'm like, this is so good. And Newton describes it. He says, yeah, your heart's enlarged. Everything's easy. And then it's not so easy. And then these old habits begin to show up. And then you start looking at yourself and looking at the stuff in your heart. And it's like, oh, I thought I had dealt with that. But it's still there. Why is it still there? And Newton describes, so he says the first stage is just, it's easy. The second stage is just characterized by conflict. And I, and, and Newton to his, and he says, by the time you get to the third stage, he goes, there's a, there is some consolation. There is some grace. But Newton says, I'm still in conflict. <laughs> um, because he just recognized just his heart. And I, I found those letters really, really helpful um, because it, it shows us that the more we walk with Jesus, the more we are gospelized, I think the more we have a sense of, man, look at my heart. What a mess. But then, as I said, Newton's final words, two things I know. I am a great sinner, but what? Christ is a great savior. I'm a, I'm a huge sinner, but Christ is a great savior. And I think that's the tension. A lot of, you know, the poor Puritans, they get a bad rap because they are a little, little heavy sometimes. But the Puritans, they understood, but they also understood grace. They understood their own sinfulness, but they also understood grace. And this is Paul's journey too, right? Paul, at the beginning of his, his ministry, I am the least of the apostles. And then he says, I'm the least of the saints. And then what does he say? I'm the chief of all sinners, right? See, he, he even goes through this. The other thing we find is that in Jesus, we begin to not only see what's going on in our hearts, but we begin, we begin to see um, what our world is really like and, and what our world could be like. So followers of Jesus can see that even though there's great joy in the Christian life, the world in which we find ourselves is beginning to sink. And there's deep problems with this world. 
Do you know, um, I got all sorts of rabbit trails today, but I think this is a fun one. How many of you have read Lord of the Rings? Hang on, that's actually going to make me cry. Only three of you. <laughs> How many of, okay, fine. How many of you seen the movie? Okay, yeah, there's all the hands, okay. <laughs> well, there's an interesting, so you know, if you don't know the story of Lord of the Rings, two little thing, people destroy a ring, killing evil, okay? That's the, the gist of it. Um, when they destroy the ring and Sauron is defeated, that's a glorious day, right? Evil has been defeated. But if you read Lord of the Rings, you'll notice that after evil is defeated and that the great victory was won, there's a sadness in Lord of the Rings at the end. If you, if you, if you actually read, it shows up in the book, there's, there's a sad, you think there'd be great joy, but in the book, there's actually sadness. And the sadness is that even though the victory has been won, the world is still declining into its in, 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 coming to an end. And I think that's part of the, um, and Tolkien saw that. Tolkien saw that history doesn't go on forever. History has a beginning and an end. And this world, even though the great victory was won on the cross, this world is still going to decline. Even though there's great victories and revivals and wonderful things along the way, there is this movement towards the end of the age. And that's what scripture teaches us, that the world will, will continue to decline until Christ returns. And so we live in, the, in, in, in that tension, in that already but not yet. And I think, yeah, Tolkien kind of captures that quite well. But often we look at the world, and if our hearts are gospelized, we look at the world and our hearts begin to mourn. Because we look at things and we say, man, it should not be this way. It should not be this way. Why is there so much starvation in the world? God is a guy, he created the world abundantly. You know how, see, God is a God of abundance. He's not a God of scarcity. We live in a world that we operate by scarcity. It's like, if I have, you don't have. You want it, I want it, let's fight over it. We see that with power too, with a boss. I have power, you don't. I'm your boss, so I have power, you don't. The way the world operates when it comes to power and abundance is it's it's scarce. I need to have more and you have less. It's a zero-sum game. But that's not God's equation. God's equation is abundance. There's so much potential in, in, in the earth to create so much food for everyone. There really is. And if any of you garden, you know this. I mean, I can crank out quite a bit in my three little squares in my backyard. I really can. I can crank out a lot of food. I can. I mean, God is, is, is God's abundance. And so God is a God of abundance. But we look at this world in a scarcity kind of way. And, 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 and our hearts begin to break. And we see all the um, starvation there is in the world. I read last week just how much money last year was spent on arms, did you read that? $125 trillion was spent on weapons last year, globally. $125 trillion. You, you look at the world and, and, and you see the, um, how, how, how the slave trade has, has just increased in, in, in incredible numbers, especially in East Asia. And it's actually this, uh, a sex slave trade that's that's alive and well throughout most of east asia and you see this and your hearts break and you say this should not be the way it is and that is part of being gospelized there's a guy named uh, nicholas Wolterstorff. Uh, he just died a few years ago his son died when he was uh, the son was 25 years old died in a mountain climbing accident and he and he says what what we are called to be is we are called to be aching visionaries. Isn't that interesting? Blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn are called to be aching visionaries. Because we catch a glimpse of what the world could be. And we look at the way the world is. And we say, oh, that should not be this way. Right? 
So what does mourning do? Blessed are those who mourn. I think when we look at where our hearts are aching, we can start to figure out God's call in our life. If you want to know God's call on your life, begin paying attention to the ache. This ache that when you look at the world, it breaks your heart. So let me ask you, and I'm going to ask you this again and again, and I'm even going to give you a chance to process this a little bit. When you look out in the world, what is it in the world that makes you weep and pound the table and say, man, it should not be this way. What is it that just stirs your heart? Now, here's the thing. I look out in the world and I see poverty. I look out in the world and I see homelessness. And those things bother me, but they do not make me weep and pound the table. They don't. Um, they should, but they, they don't. I'm just being honest. They don't. But when I, again, I said, I shared this on the weekend. When I see a young person who starts to take paths that lead to destruction, maybe lead to addiction, I see them fall into despair and they want to kill themselves. Uh, when I see uh, young people going down paths that I know, I know because I've gone down those paths myself, I know it leads nowhere. And I see the pain that they're going to go through. And I see the anxiety and the fear in their face. Oh, that makes me pound the table. That really affects me. And it always has because I came to faith because I thought there was no meaning to this life. And I was ready, I've shared this before, but I thought meaning and I thought meaning was found in power and money. The problem is, is I got power and I got money working in Shanghai, working for this company, and it was meaningless. And then I came to the point where it's like, man, if this has no meaning, maybe there is no meaning to life. And if there is no meaning to life, then why bother living? And I actually was questioning that. I was going to work for an Italian mafiosa in Beijing. I was going to be his assistant. He was offering me a job. I would be at the bottom of the Yellow River right now. I know that if I, if I said yes to that job. And, but I, I was spinning my wheels. I didn't know what to do. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe there is no meaning to life. And when I see people get to that point, it just breaks my heart. And that's part of my own story. So what is it that makes you, that really breaks your heart? You look at it and it bumps you. But then you have to ask the second question. Where are you gifted? Where are you, you know, things that you're actually pretty good at doing. And, and that gifting and that passion when they intersect is actually the place of God's call in your life. You think about that. So where is your passion and your gifting? Where do they intersect? Because I could be passionate about beautiful music in the church and be like, you know what? I'm going to sing this weekend and bring beautiful music. But I apparently do not have this gift. And aim, you don't have to nod, Chris. You know, you know just, no. I, I apparently don't have this gift. So I may have this passion, but I do not have the gift. And so it may not be my call. So where is your passion and your call? Where do they intersect? Oz Guinness, in his book, The Call, he asks a question. He says, what is it that you do that makes you come alive? That's another question to ask. What is it that you are good at doing? And if you want to know if you're good at doing, other people need to say this, right? Because I think I'm really good at this. Really? I once had a friend of mine. Actually, it wasn't a friend. Um, this guy that I knew, he says, you know what? I think, uh, I think what I have is leadership skills. I'm like, well, that's cool. He goes, so can you, uh, send me some people that, uh, I can lead? I'm like, dude, man, I'm serious. That's what he asked me. He says, can you send me some people to lead? I'm like, well, if you're a leader, you think you're a leader and you look behind you and nobody's there, you're actually just going out for a walk. That's, that's, that's all you're doing, right? So what is it that you're good at doing? 
and have somebody speak honestly in your life. And then Guinness says this, he says, do it, do it, but do it for the sake of others. It's not about you. It's for the flourishing of the world. And so the, he asks the question, he says, are you doing who you are? Are you doing what you are? Rather than you are what you do is, are you doing what you are? And so we need to use our gifts to serve him, to serve our neighbor and the world at large. So let me just pause here because I think this would be fun. And just you and, and around the table, just say, just share, and you guys can share on what makes you weep and pound the table. And, and, and how might this affect your sense of call in your life? That's what vocation means. Like the word vocation means vocatio, call, calling. That's what the word means. It's interesting. In, in, in the West, we've shifted the meaning of vocation. We don't talk about vocation. We talk about occupation. What a different meaning. Vocation is God's call. Occupation is I'm just taking up space. Right? So what makes you weep and pound the table? Where are your gifts? And what might that be saying about God's call in your life? Okay. It's an awkward conversation. This is our second awkward conversation, but give it a shot. We'll just do it for a few minutes. Okay. Okay. I'm going to do something that I haven't uh, done before. I'm going to share my screen so you guys can see it. Yeah. I mean, you guys can sort of see it. Um, so here's an example of a guy. This, you know, I like to introduce you to, to random people that you've never heard of before. Uh, you all know John Newton now. So, um, oh, hang on. Yeah. Thanks, Terry. Uh, here we go. Aha. It sort of worked. Okay, here we go. I want to introduce you to, uh, to this fellow. Oh, you can't see him. Yeah, I know. I have to move my... Uh, out of the way there. Okay, you ready? That's 7th Earl Shaftesbury on a, on a happy day. Um, it's the olden days. That's how they look. How many of you have ever heard of Ashley Cooper, the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury? How many of you seen the movie? No. <laughs> anybody, anybody see it? No. Okay, so this guy is a guy that nobody's heard of. But now you have. And let me tell you something about him. The pain of the world spoke deeply to this fella. His name is Ashley Cooper. <laughs> Do you know what his wife's name was? I'm not kidding. Minnie Cooper. That was her actual name, Minnie Cooper. Yeah. And Alice Cooper. Well, that would have been good, too. Yeah, welcome to my nightmare. Yeah. So the pain of the world spoke deeply to this fellow. He, he lived in the uh, 19th century, uh, 1801 to 1885 is his years. Um, when he was a young man, he lived in a place called Harrow, and he's going along the street where he witnesses something. What he witnesses is a poor person's funeral. And the coffin was this shoddy, kind of thrown-together, ill-made box, and the body was in this box and it was being pushed along in a wheelbarrow. And the wheelbarrow was pushed by five guys who were drunk as skunks. They're pushing the barrel along and they're laughing and they're joking. And as they went up a hill, something happened. The wheelbarrow tipped over and the box broke open and the body just fell out. And it was a kid. It was a kid who had died. And Shaftesbury saw this and his heart broke. And he says, you know what? When I grow up, I, I want to do something about this. Now, one of the things about Shaftesbury is uh, he becomes a, a parliamentarian. And he works in parliament. And one of the things that he does is he sees the working condition of children. Now, the working conditions of children, let me just show you this. This is my church history slides. Um, in particular, kids that worked in coal mines. Kids five years old living in coal mines who would be woken up at five in the morning 
chained, chained to carts, to coal carts, and they're small enough that you can move around. And they would work from basically six in the morning till about eight or nine at night. So 15 hours. And they go to bed and then be up at five. So they only have a few hours sleep and they, they would die very quickly. And so it was mostly women and children who were working in the coal mines. And Shaftesbury saw this. He says, this, this should not be. This should not be. And he had to fight tooth and nail. And finally, you know what law he passed? He passed a law to reduce the amount of hours that kids had to spend in the coal mine to a maximum of 10 hours. Still 10 hours. And he had to fight. But he also introduced something else. He introduced um, Sunday laws to say, you know what? Kids should not work on Sundays. They, they can be educated. And then he, um, he passed a number of um, government bills to, um, to educate children. But not just children. He also had a real heart for those who were mentally disabled. And um, he actually started um, a way to improve the conditions because the conditions in, in the um, in, in, in asylums were, were just brutal. I mean, you know, the expression was well, absolute bedlam. Well, it comes from an asylum in, 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 in England called bedlam. And it was just an absolute mess. And so he, he works doing that. Now, this guy, he's just this parliamentary. He's just this, you know, awkward looking guy. But in, in 1844, he becomes president of the Ragged School Union which offered basic education for working class children. And there's estimates through his work that 300,000 children were educated. Um, he was working towards um, incredible um, uh, housing projects, social housing. And he built over 1,200 houses, housing 8,000 people. And... Um, he also passed laws to, um, to protect these guys, Ch chimney sweeps, which who could fit into a chimney but kids. And kids would not last very long. They would die. And so he, he, he outlawed children working in those, or he reduced the number of children working in these conditions. Now, I just want to lay that out because nobody here has heard of Ashley Cooper of the seven-year-old Shaftesbury. And if you look at him, he's like, he's no great shakes. He's just this ordinary looking guy. And he was a bit awkward. He's, and I, I read a biography on him and he's just, he's not a very colorful figure at all. He's just, kind, he's kind of boring. But he was passionate. And through his life, hundreds of thousands of children were educated and got pulled out of incredibly poor working conditions. Because after the 10-hour working um uh, bill was passed, then it became less and less and less. And finally, the children were not allowed to work in the, in the coal mines. But he got the ball rolling. And, but here's a guy who he saw the intersection. When he saw that child, you know, treated the body just falling out and the guys didn't care, that's, that made his heart cry out. And it intersected with his gifts because he was a very gifted parliamentarian. And he was a good leader. And he led all these committees and he brought about incredible changes. I remember a, a friend of mine, some of you will know who he is. He's passed away is John Davies was, was quite involved in social housing in Coquitlam in the Tri-Cities and in Vancouver um, because he was, he was passionate about this and he, 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 he led different committees and, and, and some amazing things happened. And so I just want to lay that out because that's, 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 just one example from, from church history. And there's so many examples of this um, that, that we can think of. There's a real connection between the first beatitude and the second beatitude. I hope you see this. Blessed are those who mourn follows naturally from the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the first one is, I don't have what it takes. The second one, yeah, I don't have what it takes. Have mercy on me and have mercy on this world. 
And there is such a thing as Christian tears. And the problem is, is that we shed too few of them. And Jesus ought to be our model here. There's a, uh, a line in the Book of Common Prayer. A prayer says, Lord, we acknowledge and bewail. There's an old term. Our manifold sins and wickedness. And so, blessed are those who mourn. One other thing about mourning is that mourning is not the same as being morose, which is solid. And sometimes you think, you know, as Christians, yeah, blessed are those who mourn. It means we have to be really depressing people, like, ah. But you can be serious without being solemn, right? You can be in mourning without being morose. You look at Jesus, he's, he's not moping around, but he feels things deeply. And I like what Martin Luther says. He says this, he says, so also a man is said to mourn and be sorrowful, not if his head is always drooping and his face is always sour and he's never smiling. But if he does not depend on having a good time and loving it up and living it up the way the world does, which yearns for nothing but having sheer joy and fun here, revels in it, not, and neither thinks nor cares about the, say, uh, the, the, oh boy, what's my writing, state of God or men. He says what it means. He says you can mourn and you can be sorrowful, but you don't have to look that depressed. Real sadness can coexist with deep joy. And that's one of the things you need to realize. Joy is not synonymous with being happy. You can have a deep sense of joy and still mourn. And then Jesus, uh, then Jesus says, he says, blessed are those who mourn for you will be comforted. And we know when will we be comforted? When will we experience comfort? Well, when the, we read in, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 21, I saw new heaven and new earth. First heaven had passed away and uh, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. And so we get this picture. Yes, in the end of all ages, there will be no more mourning. This will come to an end. We will be comforted. But as I pointed out, it's a very interesting word that's used in the Bible for comfort. And the word is parakaleo, which means comfort, but it means more than that. It's that soldier spurring one and along. So it's like you're in a battle, Terry, you're in a battle. Keep going. Do not stop. And you're like, yes, I feel that strength. I'm going to keep going. That's the word that, that Jesus uses. It's not consoling. To be comforted means to be comforte. The word comfort, comforte. Com means with, forte means strength. It means coming along and strengthening. It's, it's that picture, and you know this from the movie, Lord of the Rings, where Sam says, I may not be able to carry the ring, but I'll carry you, Mr. Frodo. Yes, well done, yes. And takes them in the end. That's, that's the strength. In many ways, Sam is actually an image of the Holy Spirit, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, yeah. And so you think about that, that's the word comfort. And the Greek word is parakaleo, but it sounds like the word, it's connected to the word paraclete, which is a word that we use for the Holy Spirit. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. He does bring comfort. When we're feeling uh, the weight of our sin, the Holy Spirit says, hey, yes, there is sin in your heart, but remember the cross. Because of the cross, all your sins are forgiven. You can boldly approach the throne of God. God will receive you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. You're okay. And so you feel that pain, but you also, so it's grace that taught my my. Um, heart to fear and grace, my fears relieved, right? The two go together. And I also look at the world and my heart breaks, but Jesus comes along and he encourages me or the Holy Spirit comes along and encourages me and say, you know what? God is still at work in this world. The world as, as Ashley Cooper, the seventh year old Shaftesbury saw, the world does not have to be this way. We can bring about change through if we live out our calling.
But what is our call is to take up our cross. To take up our cross and to follow the ways of Jesus. We cannot solve the problems of sin and death, but God can in and through us if we allow his kingdom to work in us. And so that's what I want to lay out with you today. There's a lot in that, isn't there? This is one line. Blessed are those who mourn. Wait till we talk about the meek uh, next week. Um, it's, it's loaded, but it's, it's an invitation into something that's just huge and beautiful. And so my prayer often is, Lord, may the things that break your heart break mine. Too often my heart is broken by, you know, things that don't break God's heart, like the Toronto Maple Leafs losing in game seven year after year. I don't think that breaks God's heart. And so, but I get really upset over that, which is, I think, a problem. <laughs> I think it is a problem. May the things that break your heart, God, break my heart including the sins of my heart and the, the things that I see in this world. So I've given you some questions to consider. Here are some questions. What is your first experience of grief and mourning that you remember? How was your grief expressed? Can you relate a time when your sadness was a launching pad for growth? How comfortable are you or comforted with the reality that Jesus wept uncontrollably in the face of sadness? And then what makes you weep and pound the table and say, this should not be? And then where are your gifts and how do they intersect? Does that make sense? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And if you have some questions, we can take, take some questions. But uh, let me just pray and we'll, we'll go from here. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Lord, may the things that break your heart break our own hearts. And may we do this, not from a place of man, we are toast, but from a place of we are beloved, we are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High because of the work on the cross because of your work dying for our sins, but not staying dead, but being raised to new life. And so we, may, we, may we approach all of this. May we enter into the kingdom of mourning, not in despair, but with hope because of the gospel, because of the good news of the cross. But then may we be in sync with your heart aligned with the things that matter to you that's our desire lord in jesus name we pray amen thanks for participating in this class if you've been engaging in classes online but you're not a part of a church community we would love to have you join us you can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of ca church